tonight. Hello, and welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IE Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, and joining me this week is a special guest that we'll get to later in the episode. But before we get to that, I'm kind of back from the Heartland Film Festival. Sorry for the gap in the recording schedule. I'm actually right now recording this at the uh, Can Can Cinema in Indianapolis, Indiana, one of the five locations that we had screenings at for the film festival. Uh, They were kind enough to let me do some work here because uh, I'm here tonight for a screening of Andrzej Zulowski's Possession. I believe that screened way back in like 2013 or 2014 at the IU Cinema. And this is just a dream come true to get to see it again on a big screen and apparently sold out screening. So yeah, the Can Can Cinema is great. Everyone here, the staff, the food, the facilities is incredible. There's also a certain past IU Cinema director who's on the board here. So there is some uh, family ties to Can Can Cinema. But before I keep on waxing poetic about theaters I enjoy, yeah, this is an interview with Jonathan Hertzberg at Fun City Editions. He is responsible for some of the great titles I've gotten in the past few months, like Smile and Rancho Deluxe, and the new release of a box set of TV movies called Primetime Panic as came out uh, last month, and I wanted to give it its own space to breathe, but I figured why not just have him come on and talk because I'm so interested in how Blu-ray distribution works and how distribution works in general and just starting your own cinema-based company. But then also I wanted to know about the man behind the company. So uh, yeah, it was a great interview. And as you'll hear, I have even off mic begged him to come back for another interview and hopefully he can come back to Bloomington because he is also an IU alum of the School of Communications and Culture So it was a great interview, and I'm so lucky to have been able to do it, even though I was doing it during the, like, height of the festival. I remember, I think I recorded it on, like, Sunday morning at, like, 11, and I had to be at the Can Can Cinema at, like, 1 p.m., so sorry uh, for the gap in the schedule. I should have been posting other things, but... I think you guys will enjoy this interview. Um, There's a lot of insight here. And also, I think you'll enjoy this box set. Uh, Part of the reason I wanted to interview Jonathan so much was because it's off the beaten path cinema. TV movies aren't usually given the time of day unless they're, you know, like playhouse uh, movies or like, like people like John Frankenheimer would do or stage plays by famous auteurist directors. There's a whole catalog of film out there that is untapped. And so this is a good way to explore that. So yeah, um, I would usually put the schedule here, but I decided let's just get to the interview. So I will see you guys on the other side. Bye. My name is Jonathan Hertzberg. I am the uh, founder and owner and president and, and all-in-one, one-man band of uh, Fun City Editions. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, Jonathan. This has been, uh, ever since we, I got put in contact by, uh, with you by John Vickers, the uh, former director of the IU Cinema, and he told me about your label, 
and me diving into it. I have been chomping at the bit to essentially speak to you about just the whole inside baseball of what it's like to start an independent uh, boutique Blu-ray label and just your passions as a cinephile and your career and what you've done. And then I'd also like to talk about your most recent release, which is the Primetime Panic Fun City Editions TV box set, which you were so kind enough to send to me. You have a very passionate following of people in Bloomington, Indiana. I still have <laughs> friends and people come up to me as like, man, I rewatched Rancho Deluxe the other day. Really? Oh, yeah. Dave Walter at Vulture Video, uh, which is like our local video store, loves Fun City Editions. Uh, you sure it's, it's not just one person? There's more than <laughs> Or two people, it's definitely, including you? Look, it's Bloomington. It's a small town, yeah. but you have quite a few people. Even if they don't, even if they can't remember that it's called Fun City Editions, they're always like, oh, I watched Smile, or I, chalked out, I checked out, you know, Walking the Edge. I've had people who've taken, like, a, a large appreciation to your films. But before we get to Primetime Panic, I wanted to talk a, a lot about you, honestly, and what you do and what sure. your label is. And I think one of the most striking things about your label, when I read your mission statement uh, on your website, there's the quote about, like, how Fun City Editions is releasing films that, like, are out of their time or something like that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. And I kind of wanted you to like expound upon that and just like your philosophy because these films kind of like are very specific as to what they are. So how did you get started with the company and uh, how like what is your process for picking these films and how do you come to them? Sure. Wow. <clears throat> There's a lot there. Uh, well, well, so um, so I started Fun City Editions uh, or or. It kind of really got rolling uh, about, uh, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago. So a little before COVID, um, I'd always wanted to, I think for a long time, I wouldn't say always, but for a long time, I, I had thought about that I'd like to have my own label. I've worked in distribution for, uh, for a lot of years, like, well, you know, nearly 15 years. Um, and um, I'd been, you know, so working... It's somewhat in acquisitions, but uh, but when it's not your own company, of course, you don't get all the say. And a lot of times you have really good you, you think you have a really good idea and it just kind of, um, you know, it's kind of just met with silence or, or or they say no. So, you know, I kind of had this in the back of my mind for a while and um, and I have other you know friends at other companies uh including vinegar syndrome and uh another friend of ours was was uh he was working on a on a on a deal with a studio uh helping a broker a deal and uh cuz he has a, a good relations connections with a lot of different studios and, and this was MGM in this case and uh so that's where the first five fun city edition titles came from it was basically an opportunity where i was able to piggyback on a larger deal that that vinegar syndrome was was uh doing with the studio and so that's how i ended up with uh with things like rancho deluxe and i start counting and jeremy and these were titles you know it's harder you know what we do and i'm glad you you know you you, you brought up the mission statement there which which is uh kind of obvious to me but i i realize that it's not it's probably it probably does need a little bit of explaining but basically as you can see we, we're not like we don't do like horror movies or something, you know, that's sort of easily, easily definable. And I guess um, the way I would put it is that, you know, if you look at the titles, you, you know, you could see, oh, I get it. Uh, but you can't really, you can't really 
condense it into into like uh you know a really uh pithy you know selling line i guess so basically these are films that oftentimes have slipped through the cracks or kind of are sleepers or hidden gems i mean we've you've heard all of these these phrases before but the, i don't know i was thinking when i thought of when i thought of that line movies that exist outside of their time i was just thinking that that since these are films that maybe have been forgotten or were popular once many years ago and sort of went into hibernation for a while that they haven't been so exposed so that you associate them with a certain time period so like even even if something like Jeremy is very obviously 70s in a lot of ways on the surface there's other parts of it that seem more timeless because it's not a I don't know because it's not a greatest hit it's kind of like I think about how with music you know especially in the in the the day and age that we live in with very narrowly defined uh, music genres like I think about growing up listening to the radio and listening to there was an oldie station, a classic rock station, and they would just play the same like 200 songs over and over again so that they kind of ruined those songs for me and for a lot of people forever. You hear other songs from the same time period, and because they were not, you know, pounded into you by the radio, they don't seem so tied to their era. They don't seem so old. They can actually still seem fresh and sort of timeless. That's how I think of things like like Jeremy or like I Start Counting. Or, you know, really, that's how I try to look at all all the stuff. I'm not, it's, for me, it's more fun to find the things that are, in my estimation, been un, unfairly or un, unjustifiably buried or, or ignored. And it's just more fun to, to do something that hasn't been done before. So, I mean, that's sort of a few of the things that go into this decision making in terms of the acquisitions. And of course, I mean, a lot of these are movies that I've loved for a long time, and I've sort of preached them for a while and now i now i'm in this position where i'm able to go a step further than just say oh you should watch this movie you know i'm actually able to you know really package it and give it a, a new life and and it's you know it's incredible it's really a dream the thing you said about things being overplayed and so they feel of their time and then discovering something new and it feels fresh like that is i think a great philosophy especially within film and obviously you talked about it with like conjunction of music because I think there's the idea that freshness and newness have to go hand in hand but that's not the case like freshness like new, something being new does not imply that it's fresh something like something old is and can feel fresh to an audience and that's why I like your label so much because watching something like smile obviously that's a movie that draws comparisons to something like drop dead gorgeous but watching it in 20 21 like, like i did this year it felt like a movie that could have come out like six like something a24 could have put out <laughs> six months ago as like they're like a a24 made a beauty pageant movie or you know neon or whatever like mm -hmm. it just it feels fresh and it feels exciting to watch and that's that's why i like it. what about your label so much thank you for hitting on that that's great <laughs> i kind of want to back it up even just like a little bit further sure, sure. before we go even more into your philosophy but like how did you get into this industry? Yeah. Um, like, where did you start? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to go too far back. But, um, but it's funny that you mentioned John Vickers because, uh, because John is someone that I've worked with for a lot of years in, in distribution, uh, you know, being that he's, a, you know, he's, he's been a programmer for, for a while. And I worked with him at IU Cinema, but also I worked with him before that uh, at his theater, the, the Vickers Theater. Uh, up in yeah. up in Michigan, 
And um, it's funny because John, this was, he might not remember this, but like five, six years ago, yeah, at least, uh, he and I were waiting in a, we were coming back from the uh, Art House Convergence Conference. The Art House Convergence is a, is like a collective of uh, exhibitors, independent uh, exhibitors and distributors uh, around the country, actually around the world. And there's a conference in, in January, or at least there used to be before COVID in Utah. So John and I were coming back from that conference, me being on the distribution side, working for Kino Lorber and, and, and John, of course, representing uh, IU Cinema. And I think I said to him, he asked me, like, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to do this, keep doing this forever or something? I, I don't remember exactly. But I told him, I was like, well, you know, if I had my, if I had my druthers, if, you know, if, at this point, I would like to have my own label. He might not remember that, but it, it, you know, it was just, and again, I don't remember exactly how that, how that conversation happened. We were just sitting there waiting for a connecting flight. So I've been in distribution for, for a while, but before that I was in exhibition. I did programming for when I was in college in, uh, the, at the Student Film Society at, at University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I did my undergrad uh, in the 90s. And then in graduate school, I was at the University of Chicago. I did programming with doc films over there. And I worked, I worked for distributors, uh, you know, like in my 20s, trying to, you know, work my way permanently into this industry in some, in some form. So, and when I was in Chicago, I had programmed uh, for the Chicago International Film Festival. And so I had, you know, experience uh, dealing with all these distributors, uh, you know, mostly in New York. And then I was, but I was still in academia at that point. And actually, uh, you might not know this, maybe you do, but I, I was actually in a doctorate program at IU in Bloomington. Uh, and I spent, oh, a, okay. I, I spent a year there. And it was in the uh, Department of uh, Communications and Culture. So I was in cinema studies. And, uh, but I realized that, uh, you know, after being at, you know, University of Chicago in a master's program and now here uh, or in Bloomington in the PhD program, I, I realized after a year that it just wasn't. Uh, the place for me. So I, you know, thankfully for me, I got, I got out of that. Um, and <laughs> after a year, I mean, Bloomington was lovely. Don't get me wrong. And I had said, I met some great people there. And, and also it was before the IU cinema was there. It w- would have been a lot more fun if, if the IU cinema existed when I was there, but it was kind of still, I think in the works, like John wasn't there yet. So anyway, I, I came back to New York, uh, you know, and I grew up in the New York area. So I just met with a bunch of different distributors and, uh, you know, just informational interviews, people I knew from my programming. And I, I ended up in the world of theatrical booking. You know, it's like one of those things. It's not what anyone dreams of doing, especially when you're thinking about, I want to get into film. You're probably thinking most people want to be a director or they want to be a critic. Or they, you know, they want to do something that's a little more glamorous or a little more... Uh, exciting sounding than than booking uh, films, you know, but it taught me a lot about, even though I had worked in distribution before, I had never really, you know, kind of, everything had been kind of short term. So anyway, so for like the last, like I said, 10, 15 years, this is what I've been doing at first at IFC Films and then at at Kino Lorber. When I was at Kino, which I, I, I did actually just leave after being there for eight years, uh, I was involved at a certain point there. I launched a label within Kino called Kino Lorber Repertory. So this is where I really got more specifically into older films, repackaging, restorations. Basically, I used to say that a lot of what I worked on were new old films, and that we were launching a lot of films that were that didn't have much of a profile, but they were 
technically films from the past and sort of the job was trying to kind of build awareness, build a profile. I mean, some things, you know, people knew, but there were a lot of things that were sort of more of that hidden gem uh, variety. Anyway, while I was at Kino, it's a small enough company that I sort of stuck my nose into other departments and I just picked up as much information as I could about how how deals are made, how films are licensed or acquired, uh, where to find them, also about the restoration process and about just what you need basically to do a good restoration in terms of elements and just, you know, kind of just building a Rolodex. You know, I used all of that uh, to launch when I launched Fun City. And, and even though I'm doing a lot of stuff with Fun City that I never did uh, as my job per se. Oh, like I'm kind of interested. Like what? Well, I never worked on the, I always was interested. I've always been a collector, I should say, you know, uh, that's another important element here. I've always been interested in publishing. I've always been someone that collected movies, music, books. You could see the records uh, behind me. You have a very nice record collection. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you, you don't want to, you don't want to ever move with. Oh, I'm currently like in a someone's get I'm like in a guest house essentially. Yeah. This is not my office. If you looked behind me in my regular house, there'd be a giant shelf full of like comic books uh-huh. and yeah. omnibuses and movies and we I had just moved and it's it's not fun, so I feel your pain. Yeah, well, you know, also it's sort of like I'm at yeah, it, it, this is a whole other conversation, but but uh there's something to be said for for being a little lighter on your feet and uh, not having everything for every, you know, oh, I might want to read that someday, or I, I, you know, I might want to watch that. I need, I need, so I need to have it all just in case. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sickness, but but the good <laughs> thing about being, you know, doing what I'm doing is it sort of takes you away from it in a way because I can't be as focused on collecting as much as I, you know, my mission, you know, it's sort of like what I'm doing is is adjacent to that. I mean, I'm marketing and I'm creating product for collectors. You know, this is not a mass market thing we're doing, obviously. We're really kind of, you know, catering to a specific, a niche. And I, and I know that niche well, like I, as I said, of being being part of it for my whole life, basically. Because I think it's something you're kind of, it's, it's an impulse I think you're kind of born with but uh at least in my case i could go way back you know if i went to a sporting event with my dad you know it's like i wanted the program you know right away yeah i've thought about that because i because it's some of a fellow collector i've like thought about like a, what is that impulse i used to think it maybe came from like some sort of like undiagnosed ocd or whatever but like i never thought that was the case because I was like, well, these are for a purpose. I just don't want, like, I don't have like 18 copies of one movie or anything like that. Like, I just don't go and buy like a copy of the Santa Claus every time I go to the Goodwill or something. Um, And I think there's a little bit, I've talked to some people about it and they've kind of mentioned that maybe there's like kind of an archivist attitude to collectors, Mm. meaning that like I might be the only person in the world that has a copy of this thing because no one else in the world cares about it and it's going to end up in a landfill somewhere Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so by having it, even if I don't watch it for 40 years, like it sits on a shelf collecting dust, you have the like safety net of like believing that like a well somebody might get something out of this someday like it might end up in someone's hands like it could end up being uploaded to a server somewhere because it was the last copy Mm. of something like you know of a movie that got distributed from a boutique label where they only made 1200 copies and your copy is the only one that exists (laughs) you know maybe that's just like me reasoning while i why i spend thousands of dollars on things i don't technically need but i think there is something kind of especially in an age where 
kind of things are a little bit more disposable to having the physical version of something mm-hmm. just in case, mm-hmm. and, you know, and at the very least, it, maybe it's just a thing of like, oh, this says something about me, even if I never watch it or listen to it or read it ever again. This is a thing that's important to me. Sure. Sort of like it tells you people look at your shelves and, and they can they could maybe learn something about you uh, much quicker than if you tried to put it into words. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's that's kind of the way I'm choosing to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, it sort of like goes back to what I was saying though before about like what is fun. You know, if someone says to me, well, what do you do? What's Fun City about? And I'll just say. I could try to explain it to you, but if you just look at the website and look at what we've put out, maybe it, I think it will it'll be a lot more succinct and more clear than if I try. It's like cinema itself. Show, don't tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to, one of the things that's becoming increasingly clear to me, especially with all the other boutique labels, like your partnership with Vinegar Syndrome and there's Arrow mm-hmm. and Indicator and the list goes on and on and on yeah. and on. And it seems like these are all labels that come from a generation of people who grew up not only experiencing a very specific time period of film. I would say that a lot of these labels tend to focus on films and as well as like classic Hollywood cinema, but tend to focus on films from, I would say, between like the late 60s and like mid to early 90s mm-hmm. in that case. But it comes from this time, a generation of people who maybe grew up where uh, home video had just kind of was becoming a thing and like TV reruns and cable networks just playing like whatever movie or like catching some obscure movie on like Cinemax in the early aughts and being like, oh, okay, I never heard of that one. And so for you, when you are coming from that generation, when you're selecting these films, and obviously you talked about like the partnership with Vinegar and them being MGM titles, like the the sky's the limits. Like there's so many undiscovered or like lost to memory or lost to time films. Like how are you choosing what decide, what's going to take your energy to restore it and then like give it this like great release? Well, it's like, it's a, I said this a few times, but it's sort of a combination of do I like it or do I love it? Is it available? Uh, do I, you know, like, do I know where to, I can get it? Does whoever owns it want to make a deal? Are they reasonable? Are there good materials from which to uh, make a restoration? But at the same time, I have to, I have to like it, but it also has to make business sense. So does it seem like something like there's an audience for, or does it seem like something that there, I could maybe create a market for? Like, does it have hooks? I always say you know, sort of like a good pop song, you know, does it, does the movie have things that I could, uh, even if it's not super well known, are there ways I can relate it to things that are better known or that are more current, say, because especially because I'm working with older films, how can I sort of connect it to, to now? So in a way, also sort of connecting to what I was saying before about a movie being outside of its time. Like someone said recently, I, this was on a Letterboxd review, uh, and I and I really like looking at Letterbox because uh, it's a good gauge I've I've found for seeing like who's watching my our my releases. Uh, I, I mean I really just I I look at it for you know when I release a movie like Jeremy like oh what was the rating of this film like before we put it out and how how's it you know is it is it going up and are people citing the Fun City Blu-ray as why they saw it or how they saw it. Anyway, so I read a review of Alphabet City on there and someone said something like, this is an 80s movie, but it's like the 80s, it's sort of like the most like, it's sort of like the 2021 version of the 80s. 
which is a, like a compliment because they're basically saying like yeah. they made this movie in the 80s, but they they hit on everything that is sort of like what people now think of as uh, I guess they, as, they somehow had distilled the decade down into what it was while the decade right. was still happening and look, somehow. And I looked at it also as even though they didn't say this and I could be I, I could be reading into this. This is a movie that's 80s, but 80s in the cool way. 80s in the way that's like that people are when they look back at it, not the cheesy 80s, but like the 80s you choose when a 2021 program emulates the 80s or a movie or whatever. You know, this is the stuff that they're citing, uh, whether it's the soundtrack or the cinematography of that film. You know, those elements, which which are really I, I could come up with for that movie, for instance, so many current uh, filmmakers or films, pop culture, you know, sort of phenomenon that that stole from Alphabet City, maybe even if they didn't even realize it. Also, what you were saying before about the sort of focus on films from this sort of more maybe more narrow era, not you know more like late sixties to nineties. Some of that's I think because a lot of that a lot of those titles were not really. Um, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't really come out previously maybe because i've said this before in other interviews and uh i'm generalizing a little bit but a lot of the people that are putting who are in my position at this point they're people of our generation which is to say maybe generation x or or younger yeah and so we're looking back at things that we grew up uh watching like you said on on home video or on cable back in the day and in the same way that the generation before us, the, the, the baby boomers, the film school generation, et cetera, whether they were the, the movies they were making or the movies that they were re-releasing tended to be things from their childhood, tended to be things that were from a generation or two before their time. And that's sort of what I feel like in a way that's that's a lot of what's going on here with, say, with my label. It's also recognizing what the audience you know the audience out there for for our stuff it is an audience that's sort of like our generation or younger you know it's not to say there aren't there are obviously there are consumers there are people i know there's people that buy our stuff who are people who actually saw smile when it came out there are people of that of earlier generations but a lot of who we're reaching and who we kind of have to reach are a younger is a younger demographic because uh because we need to, as I said, I've said this before, you hear this a lot, like, oh, physical media is dead or physical media is going to be dead in five years. And they've been saying that for a while. And um, yeah. but, you know, I, I see, you know, like I said, whether it's through looking at Letterboxd or on different social media platforms uh, or, you know, Blu-ray.com forums, I, I can tell and I know we're talking to people who are younger I mean, people that are sometimes as you know young as like high school. I feel like high school, yeah. you know, who are actually buying these these Blu-rays and actually, you know, so it's not all people that aren't going to be around per se in five years. Uh, that's just all going to die. <laughs> that's very. I mean, I, I have I have to believe that's not true. Otherwise, how can I do this? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it intrinsically, you know, just my personal opinion. Also, is someone who like I came to film. Not like later in life, but like I would say people of my generation tend to, when you talk to them, they're like, oh, I was obsessed with movies since I was a child. But I, I didn't really get into movies until I was in college. And I actually mostly got into movies, not with a movie theater. Obviously, the IU cinema became a thing eventually in Bloomington. But like I got into movies by going to our video rental store or like going to Best Buy back when Best Buy would have rows and rows of Blu-rays and you could buy, you know, whatever basic Blu-ray for $5. And then like 
it was just me sitting on a couch with my friends watching hundreds of movies all the time. And it was true, like this home video experience. And I, I don't think that is an experience that'll really ever go away with, with a certain type of person. I always talk about it. It's always like kind of an overused analogy, but it's a lot like jazz, which is the inspiration for like the title of this whole podcast. Jazz is indebted, just smells funny. It's like everything, like it's always going to exist. It's just going to take a different, more distilled form as like the audience for it becomes more concentrated and it's, it's a more educated audience. It's a more passionate audience. Like the like cultural middle ground obviously has kind of like fallen out, but the like nice part about that is that you do have, you will always have younger generations of people who are just like, uh, I, you know, while my peers are into this thing, like I am into this, like I am into like discovering something like Alphabet City and physically owning it so I can show it some, show it to someone playing it off of my PS5. Like I think people like that are just always going to this. Also, people always just want access, which is why I love doing this podcast is that one of the big issues with film distribution is like the fact that so many of these conglomerates have bought up these giant film libraries and just aren't making them accessible Mm -hmm. to people. And it just kind of loops right back around to me talking about having a thing and it might be the only thing in the world because Amazon could have all of, you know, could buy all of MGM's libraries someday and something like Smile might not just be available to stream or rent or something. You know that they have, right? Yeah. Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I I know they have. And just one day you might not be able to rent Smile for $3.99 in HD on Amazon because they might just not care enough to upload it to a server, things like that. So that's why I'm so passionate about this. And I think there are people much younger than me who feel the exact same way. They just want to watch the thing. They don't necessarily care that they have to buy a physical copy of it and they enjoy owning the physical copy of it. So I think those people always exist. But before we talk about Primetime Panic, Mm -hmm. uh, I do want to just kind of, I kind of just want to like ask you, you personally, like going on this journey of like cinephile to being within like a an educational system and then going out and working for you know a, other distributors and like having your own company mm-hmm. has it shifted your perspective on like the ecosystem uh, like the ecosystem of theatrical home media distribution that whole ecosystem has it like changed your perspective on anything yeah well so i've worked in uh you know theatrical distribution specifically for a while. I mean, that's been a lot of my professional uh, life, as I mentioned. Um, and here I am with Fun City, and I'm primarily working more in physical media, the home video side. Some of that's just a function of what rights I can get. And oftentimes with the studios, you know, you really are only able to license the physical media, the, the, the home video, not, you know, not the streaming rights and not the theatrical rights. And, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, having worked in theatrical for a long time, uh, I'm happy to be sort of not phasing out of that altogether, but uh, I'm happy to be working more on the on the physical side. I mean, that's sort of what makes the Fun City engine go at this point is more of the, the physical side. But if I can get the rights to the, you know, theatrical or streaming or TV, you know, I'll take all of those rights. But how I would say I've how how my thoughts have changed or how I've evolved or whatever in terms of uh, the release pattern or schedule or order of things is such that is is sort of in some ways similar to you know what you're seeing across the board with windows uh, getting smaller 
things not necessarily happening in the order that they always did, which was typically like theatrical and then video and then TV streaming, whatever. Now it's kind of like people do a lot of different things. Obviously, you have a lot of day and date releases where you have a theatrical happening at the same time that something is streaming. And it's just sort of the nature of, of the beast, but really not just in in this industry. I think we're talking about the specifics of film, but it really occurs everywhere. You have to evolve generally. You have to, you know, the thing I'm excited about with, say, with, with what I'm doing is I, because it's my own company, I don't have to, you know, when you're working for, when you're working somewhere else, you're working for people that have been doing this for a long time. You do encounter that people that are, people are locked into a certain process. Basically what I'm saying is I'm not locked into a process or, or something that's been in existence for a long, you know, forever, basically, or for a long time. Yeah. And, and it's when you can actually see that, oh, this could actually work and I'm not doing all the things that you're supposed to have done. It's very satisfying. So with like certain movies, like I said, I have the theatrical rights. It's like something like Radio On, for instance, which we just launched at the New York Film Festival and, um, and uh, which is going to play at Metrograph in New York. And hopefully in some other theaters, we have other theaters booked around the country. Maybe we'll come to the IU Cinema. I'm not sure if they're open yet. I mean, we'd love uh, to have you. <laughs> but but the thing is, is it's, it's just not my it's not my reason for being in this as my business exists right now, which is great because, like I said, that was my job for a long time. And to be honest with you, you know, theatrical it's it, it's been for a long time a it's been more of a ceremonial thing. Uh, it, it you know it's like it gives them you know gives a movie a certain a certain prestige, a certain awareness level. Uh, but it costs a lot of money to do it. It doesn't make it usually doesn't make a lot of money, especially when we're talking about smaller. We're talking about art house films and independent films and stuff like what I'm working on. So it's nice to be able to do it, but have it be like a bonus and not be the thing that's driving what I'm doing, for instance. So it's not to say what I'm doing is better than what others are doing, but it's it's nice to just be able to do that and like. And it's fun for me to do because it's what I've done forever, which is booking films and theaters. But it's really nice to have primarily like like I'm doing now on the on the publishing side, on the physical side. I always wanted to work in publishing. I wasn't able to do it in my day job, uh, but it sort of speaks more to what my I think what my natural skill set is. And that's because of, as I said, coming from a whole lifetime of being a collector uh but i like how you put it before is sort of also sort of uh feeding something of an archivist kind of impulse or bug or whatever so just because we have we don't have much time left and i want to get to the review for the month. <laughs> I just wanted you to talk about because this is such an. I was so excited when the when the press release for this went yeah. out because I I you there aren't a lot of Blu-ray dis- distributors putting out TV movies really at least not uh, especially not ones from this era with a golden age of like television yeah. movies. It's usually like something like a, a you know like a Playhouse movie or something like that something that John Frankenheimer maybe directed something like that uh, so would you like to tell me about Primetime Panic and how this came about and 
I'm I'm excited to talk about the through lines these that connect these movies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Abs- the creators behind. Yeah, them. absolutely. Well, well, sort of a couple things. You you don't like you said you don't see too many. You haven't seen a lot of TV movies on video ever. A lot of these films just played on TV, and maybe they were rerun in syndication for a while, but they kind of disappeared. They haven't been preserved. And, you know, so much has come out already. As you mentioned before, there's so many great other boutique labels doing amazing work. You always have to kind of think outside the box a little bit or in my position, you know, look for things that maybe other people aren't looking for or just, you know, that are untapped. And and these TV movies, especially TV movies like these that are not uh, genre, especially genre or horror, uh, they're more drama. And I, uh, you know, I'm someone that loves, as you could tell from, what we've put out. I mean, I certainly lean hard towards drama, towards, you know, not that I don't love genre stuff, but it's a, it's a nice calling card for the company. Like it really does set you apart. If I can find things that have genre elements, but they are fall within a piece that's maybe not necessarily like a straight up horror movie. Like, like I start counting, for instance, I love that Think things that just don't really fit into a neat category. So anyway, this TV movies, as you've seen, uh, the three movies that we have in this set are more sort of what a classic form of made-for-TV movies from this from the 70s and 80s, which is the golden era of TV movies. Not that there weren't classic thriller uh, TV movies and horror TV movies, but I think that by and large they were they were dramatic pieces like these, and they haven't really been done. And so we had an opportunity from one of the libraries we were licensing from that just had a lot of crazy stuff in it, stuff that wasn't for me. But then they had these TV movies and they actually had already been uh, restored. We did some new, we did our own color grading on these, but these had already been scanned in 4K from the original camera negative. They look amazing. I had, I was familiar already with Dreams Don't Die because that had been a film that I had seen as a, as a kid on TV on The Late Show because that was a movie that was rerun, but I didn't know what it was. This was pre-internet and I just kind of came into it, not at the very beginning. And so for years I was like, what was that movie? It was New York and it was these kids and it had graffiti in it. And it kind of, in some ways reminded me of the Warriors because it's the same time period. And I love New York uh, movies. I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, New York on film and that era. So that was sort of when I saw they had dreams don't die in this catalog. And then I saw these other TV movies and I could see there was a through line. I started to see that, oh, there's a potential for a package here because I think that it would be hard to do one of these movies by itself on its own. But I felt like if I put them together and um, did a real nice package that they would become that much more attractive, especially because, I mean, you have to do that because so many people haven't seen these movies at all. And so they don't have much of a profile. I should take a step back. A lot of people actually did see these movies when they were on the air. Probably more people saw, as Jonathan Kaplan said in our interview on, on um, uh, a Death Ride to Osaka, uh, a.k.a. Girls of the White Orchid, he had made many theatrical films before he did these TV movies. But he said probably more people saw Girls of the White Orchid, Death Ride to Osaka, the night it aired, than had seen all of his previous movies put together, his theatrical movies. Because of the fact that wow, these that's crazy. Yeah, well, because these were made in an era when you had what, like three major networks. There wasn't nearly as much content out there. So these had the ability to reach so many more people than a theatrical movie would at the time. Really now, it just doesn't exist anymore. 
I mean, millions of people saw that movie, for instance, the Jonathan Kaplan film, The, the Night It Aired. Uh, and then even though over the years it became sort of because of the lack of a physical release, say, you know, lack of it being distributed in some form over the years, it kind of faded from memory. But when they were new, these were water cooler uh, material. You know, the next day at work, people would be talking about this stuff because it was either like people saw Monday Night Football or they saw Freedom or maybe a couple other things, you know, but that's what they were competing against when they were making these made for TV movies. The idea was it's something that Amanda Reyes talks about on our the Freedom commentary was that so many of these films, the TV movies were were made with female audiences in mind and had stories that were very, you know, female driven because of the fact that they were counter programming, say, to big sports events like Monday Night Football. So you notice Freedom was actually was a Monday night. It did premiere on a Monday night opposite Monday Night yeah. Football. So it's good business, basically. That's, you know, and this is pre-reality uh, TV, obviously. That's kind of what took the place of all of these uh, the TV movies. Yeah, the the event of like, you know, airing on tonight, this, like, yeah, that, that was replaced by things like Survivor, Joe Millionaire. Yeah, that makes a yeah, lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And it's, <laughs> I just can't get over the idea of there being a water cooler talk. And it's just like, uh, do you see that uh, movie with the girl from Fast Times at Ridgemont High about white slavery? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, just, it's just, it's just a, it's just a different time. Yeah, but it's, it's not an exaggeration. Like it's, tr it's, yeah. it's true. Uh, Jonathan Kaplan, we have a great interview with him on the, the, on the disc for Death Ride to Osaka. And he talks about this a lot. Like he did films in theaters and obviously that's kind of what he wanted to do. He got into TV movies, not by, it wasn't something he planned, but he made the best of it. And he also appreciated the things that it offered that he wouldn't get from making, you know, movies for Roger Corman or whatever for the, you know, drive-in and the grindhouse circuit. So, you know, that's something that, that I take away, say, from putting out these TV movies or part of the mission is like, oh, these are films that oftentimes have not only slipped through the cracks, they've kind of been commonly derided as like somehow sub-cinema or inferior and there's a lot of really impressive talent in front of and behind the camera on these films and now that we've had them restored like they look better than they ever looked because they were made for tv so nobody saw them in a theater but like they were shot on 35 millimeter these were shot by you look at who the, the people that shot these films you you have cinematographers that did major films for theatrical distribution and directors as well. So these directors are directors that worked in both mediums. And you have obviously actors, Jennifer Jason Lee, for instance, she's for my money. I mean, she's probably my favorite actor of her generation, you know, so, and she's working here in, in TV and she's giving a great performance too. It's an important, I think equally historically important as a Fast Times Ridgemont High, just, to, just in terms of the progression of her, career if you're looking at her performances you, you shouldn't cut out this film because it's made for tv oh definitely not i mean she's still she's given she's given her all you know she's like it's a great it's it's a legitimately great performance like uh it, it which is you know it's interesting because we always talk about like when actors phone something in and when they don't phone something in and there's those actors that it doesn't matter what the movie is like Donald Pleasance, I'm sure, is an actor who it, it didn't matter if it was a soap commercial or a John Carpenter movie. He was going to give it his all no matter what. And Jennifer Jason Lee seems of a similar ilk yeah, to I that. Yeah, I mean, she, she's <laughs> singing in this movie. And that's the thing. And I mean, and that's part of the reason why she did it. Because she, 
had, she loved to sing. That it's clearly not her greatest talent, but it also worked for the film, for the character, because she's supposed to be someone. It's kind of a sad character because she's like she yeah. wants. This is what she wants to do, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. Maybe you might want to have a backup plan. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, this the through line of these movies being so much about you feeling for all these like young women who are like you know either like in danger yeah. or, or like are have put themselves or have ended up in situations that you like have a lot of empathy for them like i i decided to watch freedom yeah. first uh, just because it, it it was the one that the one i didn't know anything yeah. about no i didn't have any familiarity with like at all i'd kind of heard of uh dreams don't die because of the graffiti because i remember mm-hmm. someone an artist friend of mine telling me that it was one of the first movies That's right. To have actual graffiti in it. Uh, and so I put on Freedom and I wasn't expecting to have this like very heartfelt movie about like emancipation and like this mother daughter like having to come to terms with like they're more alike and different than they're willing to admit from each other and like these familial conflicts and like legitimately getting like teary yeah. like at the end of the, the movie and it, you know, I think we can sit and like kind of like snort and laugh at like, a, yeah, but it was like a TV movie from like, you know, the early 80s that people probably like put on while they were making dinner, like a late dinner or whatever. But a lot of care went into that movie, oh. like a lot of thought and a lot of like pathos like goes into those performances there. Oh, yeah. it's it's just very enjoyable. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Freedom is probably my favorite of the three movies. If I had to say, if you ask me like, oh, which one is the the the, the like legit best movie in there best movie movie i'd say probably freedom probably stands up for me the best i mean the other not that i don't enjoy lots of things about the other two films but but i think freedom from start to finish is a more fully you know the fully realized uh or you know successful piece yeah i i think i would agree with that but yeah, I mean, even getting back to you mentioning like these things being like shot on 35 and the like craft and care that went into them, like the opening to Dreams Don't Die, <laughs> I'd stack up oh, against any major release movie from the time, oh, yeah. like them in the train yard and that like the panning shot of him like doing the graffiti. Oh, yeah. And no, it's-, it's like great, like the atmosphere, the lighting, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think people associate TV movie with cheapness. Right, right. And obviously, yeah, there are moments in these movies where you're like a, well, yeah, maybe, you know, you know, it's a pickup day. They just kind of had to like spit out the dialogue yeah, yeah, and move yeah, on because yeah. they don't have a lot yeah. of money. But it seems like when you, you know, have given the time, like the people behind these movies are like very talented. Yeah. So. And they were, sh- and you got they were shooting these under very accelerated schedules. Like they shot these in a couple of weeks often. So like Jonathan Kaplan said, if I hadn't done these TV movies, because he did about four TV movies uh, after he did Over the Edge and uh, Death Ride to Osaka was one of them. And he said, if I hadn't done those, I wouldn't have been able to do my next feature theatrical film, which was Heart Like a Wheel, which I really recommend um, if you haven't seen it. But he said Heart Like a Wheel wasn't a big budget film and it had an acceler- it had a short schedule. Because he had done those TV movies, he was like, no sweat, I could do it because I worked on an even shorter schedule than that having to do those because they cranked those TV movies out. But yeah, so it's kind of a minor miracle when they turn out like, freedom or like you said like just like how good dreams don't die looks i mean i and i talk about that on the commentary that i'm i'm on on the dreams don't die disc just like the way the lighting so many so many of those scenes are just like you said that opening sequence there all the graffiti sequences in particular even though the movie kind of has to take an anti-graffiti tone 
At yeah, it, it's very Hayes Cody yeah, yeah. when it comes to that, because like the cop is right, right, right. and you know he does need to go to art yeah, school. Yeah, like, yeah. but they know. wouldn't, they wouldn't have had access to the trains, and they wouldn't have had had access to all of those sort of public. They wouldn't have had access to the subway. They wouldn't have had access to the. They wouldn't have been able to shoot in a police station and do all that stuff if they didn't kind of you know meet some of those Hayes Code uh, requirements, which is to say that the characters have to be reformed, but the skill, the the just just overall the the verve, if you will, that the graffiti sequences are filmed with shows you. Well, yeah, I know we have to say that this stuff is bad at the end, but God, I mean, it's beautiful to look at, and and these are the best sequences in the movie. Like the most exciting sequences are all the graffiti sequences for sure. Although, don't want to shortchange the very amusing like minors getting away with juveniles getting away with crimes because <laughs> of the way the New York <laughs> juvenile courts work. Yeah, yeah. Like that that was a fascinating thing for me to watch and a pretty good premise for an entire movie in itself. No, it is, and I and I was wondering, you know, if it was if that, all of that was fact based or not. I mean, if it was yeah. all actually accurate, and I mean, most of these films actually are, are so many of them are you know ripped from the headlines based on a true story, and that's kind of why we came up with the title of the series, the box set Primetime Panic, uh, because it was sort of like, well, we have to come up with something because these are dramas, they're not horror films. We, you know, Vinegar Syndrome has televised terror. You know, it's harder to come up with a title that is going to hook people for these types of movies, but they are ripped from the headlines and, and they, and, 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 you know, so sort of like I was thinking along the lines of tabloids and how tabloid journalism is sort of about getting people worked up into a lather. And that's part of what sort of drove these movies to be made also was sort of you taking like issues, social issues of the day. And again, remember how widely these were seen. That's part of why they were, uh, you know, water cooler fodder, because they were talking about things. People were talking about graffiti, you know, graffiti was like, yeah, it was a menace. It was a scourge for a lot of people. So totally makes sense. You have to kind of look at it through 1981, 82 eyes, sometimes, you know, a little more than the 2021 lens. And I actually do that a lot on the commentary. I, I was in touch with the director of Dreams Don't Die, Roger Young, and I sort of apologized to him. I'm like, look, if you if you listen to the commentary, I'm sorry if I'm a little harsh on the film at times. Because, <laughs> um, uh, because you know, this is sort of goes for, I think, um, when you're watching not just TV movies from, you know, from the past, but just films in general is always kind of, it's all about context. Older, you know. You know yeah, always about Always got to remember that, you just can't judge these things uh, on on whatever the current uh, whatever the current kind of standards are, or you know whatever however evolved we are now, as opposed to forty years ago or whatever. You kind of have to remember. You just take yourself. Let the movie take you. Is what I say. You know, yeah. sort of like go with it. I mean, obviously, there's things we can criticize because they were not as woke as we are now, but. You know, it's important to remember to remember when the thing was made. And that's why I like you and so many boutique labels. You go out of your way to have things like commentaries, video essays, es like written essays that do contextualize yeah. those things. Because I think it's easy for people to be very knee jerky about like, uh, I refuse to engage with this thing because it doesn't meet, you know, whatever my ethical standards sure. are for it. But if you're engaging with art in like a, in any sort of like 
intellectually honest way. Like it is important to have someone there to like guide your hand and be like, yes, we recognize that these things were wrong and they always were wrong to begin with. Like, you know, Rancho Deluxe, like uh, someone, you know, a white man playing a Native American, two Italian, you know, white man, Italian playing Native Americans, like, you know, not right. And it's and it's obviously not coming from a place of like parody, like they're not trying to like punch down or anything like that. But it is nice to have like someone there to like guide and like mention those right, things right. And, and let me know like, uh, okay, like we knew this was wrong to begin with, but given the context of when this film was coming out, this is probably why they were doing it. I always appreciate that. And I think it's important to, yeah. for that to just keep being a thing as we keep distributing things from times when the world wasn't as enlightened as it is today. And the world isn't very enlightened today <laughs> to begin with, but right. I mean, nothing. Nothing is you know all good or all bad. I mean, there's gray. Air. We're you know there's there's ways that we could look back and say, oh, in some ways it was better. Some things were better, maybe a little healthier <laughs> then than now. Um, and, and you know, and obviously, yeah, like you said, something like Rancho Deluxe. You you wouldn't get away with. First of all, that movie wouldn't. There's just beyond the casting of that. There's there's so many things that just wouldn't fly. You could not make that movie today. It's impossible. I couldn't imagine anyone funding that. Yeah, that's like a cliche at this point. Oh, this would never get made now. <laughs> it's more just like a no one would have the money. Like no one would be like, are you serious? I'm not giving you $2 million to make this like or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll always have that context. We will always have a, we'll always have a commentary. We'll always have... Uh, an essay well i i i mean i feel like first of all you have to give something there has to be something more than just the movie and since we're working with older films yeah it's all about historical context and i try to try to match i always try to have people do those commentaries or write those essays who you know who i think are a good fit or who i know are already kind of engaged with that film or that filmmaker or that time period whatever so, I, yeah, I just think that enriches the whole experience, the whole package. It's also just one of my post, my favorite post-film activities is to grab a beer and then be like, a, all right, let's see what this interview's like. And just sit back and like kind of relax and let it wash over me. So please keep doing that. We'll do. um, unfortunately, we're going to get to the wrap-up era of this interview because, as you know, like I'm in the middle of Heartland Film Festival. And I got to get <laughs> to a venue in like one hour from now. So... The, the last three questions I have for you is, would you do a primetime panic two if you have the materials for it? What would you like the audience uh, to know about Fun City Editions and where they can buy things? Okay, and, sure. you know, just yourself, if there's something about yourself you want to plug. And <laughs> I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I want to have you back on again in the future because I feel like we only kind of breached the tip of the iceberg on this one. Wow. Well, thank you. First, well, thanks for having me. First of all, I, 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 totally enjoy this and especially i have a bloomington connection as well so i there's a little pride there too um i'd love to come back sometime maybe do something with the with the iu cinema um and and answer questions you know in person too um always like to because uh distribution is uh you know this business there's still so much um it's still shrouded in so much mystery so and it's not something that you learn about so often in film classes so always happy to kind of engage with uh with students and you know sort of because i didn't have that i i didn't have i would have loved to have known about a lot of this stuff when i was getting out of school or when i was in school primetime panic 2 yes i'd love to do a primetime panic 2 and watch out for it you know via our website you can go to funcityeditions.com uh and you can find us on 
most of the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, are always, I'm always interacting with, uh, customers with, with fans, consumers over there. And, um, and then of course you can order our product directly from vinegarsyndrome.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Like I said, we'll have you on back in the future. I can't wait to what I can't wait to see whatever else is coming out. I have like a million questions. You have a you have a Cafe Flesh soundtrack coming out. That's a movie I saw at the that's a movie I got to see at the IU Cinema oh, wow. years and years ago with a packed audience at oh, midnight. That's, amazing. that's, that's like rare. a formative that's memory. That's very for rare. Me. Very so, rare. That's yeah. so uh, but we can talk about that more later, but Thank yes. you so much for being on. And yeah, uh, please check out Primetime Panic from Fun City Editions, everybody. Thanks, David. I'd like to thank Jonathan for taking time out of his very busy day to do that interview. And I hope you guys got something out of it. As far as things coming up in the future, there will be a special Halloween episode of Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny, and then hopefully for the rest of the semester we'll get to a more regular schedule. I know I always promise that, but the film festival kind of threw things out of loop for me for a little bit, so I just wanted to give you guys something to listen to. But uh, yeah, please stay tuned for those very exciting Halloween titles from a few different distributors and the appearance of our first television show. But I promise I still tie it back to cinema in some way, but I would have been a fool not to cover this release. Um, And I have a very special guest for that episode too. As far as everything else, please continue to follow the IE Cinema on Instagram and Twitter. Um, You can find me on, well, I'm going to be taking a hiatus from the internet for a few weeks. I think the way I phrased it is I'm going to be using the internet like it's 2006 again, just meaning like emails and like if we're not counting clicking something on streaming, which I'm also going to try to avoid and focus on my giant pile of back-cataloged movies, maybe some YouTube videos, maybe some forums if I get bored enough, but I really want to focus on getting back into like watching movies and reading books and reading comic books and listening to music for a little bit just to kind of reset myself. But until I come back, you can follow me on Twitter at SamuraiFlix, on Instagram at Robert Dolphy on Letterboxd at Robert Dolphy. You can find my sadly absent co-host on all social media at Elizabeth Rail, R-O-E-L-L. And please just stay tuned for the rest of the screenings at the Ice Cinema this semester. Uh, If I post this episode up on time, there should be a screening of Heaven Can Wait this Sunday, which may be my final, my finally triumphant return to watching a movie at the Ice Cinema because I've been too busy to despite wanting to very badly. But thank you for joining me on another episode of A Place for a Film. I'll see you at the movies. Good night.